It's a pleasure to be here with Marcus Gilroy Ware, a visiting lecturer in online journalism at City University. Um, his, cousin, his current research is primarily centred on the effect of digitalisation and the network on culture and communication. Marcus is a founder of the open source smartest online publishing platform and owner of VCS Creative, a group of digital media related businesses. He's also currently studying for a Master's in Law at Birkbeck University. Um, thank you for inviting us um, to your office and agreeing to this counterpoint interview. Thanks for coming. Oh, no, it's absolutely fine. Um, today we'll be discussing WikiLeaks, the internet and cultural risk. So just to start off, um, what do you think are the main issues that arise from the WikiLeaks case? I think um, it's, it's raised quite a variety of different issues. First of all, it's made people ask again, and they should be asking this, what is journalism? Is Julian Assange a journalist or not? I think that's been quite interesting because there's been so many different answers to that. People have been asking uh, or remembering what, it's, what it means to challenge authority, and that's always good. Um, and I think it's, it's shown us what kind of some of the power of the internet can be, you know, um, the, the so even architecturally, like what it enables people to do, you know, something we're seeing basically an equal battle, a level playing field between the US government and uh, a group of people in jeans who, who think that something in the world isn't right. Mm. Um, what do you think the WikiLeaks affair says about the internet, online journalism and culture more generally? The internet, online journalism and culture more generally, it, it, it says um, that the internet, as I said before, is, is probably the best place or one of the best places um, for people to make their political concerns, uh, to enact their political concerns, other than the streets where people know that they can be kettled. Um, you know, on the internet they know they can't. So in a sense that's... Um, uh, that's an important thing for us to remember. Um, I don't think it says an awful lot about online journalism. I mean, online journalism is something that uh, is still very evasive in lots of ways. There's lots of things that kind of look a bit like journalism online or that do some of the same jobs as journalism, but don't necessarily correspond to the offline journalism that we've, we've seen before. And... Um, that don't, that aren't being done for the same motives necessarily. Well, sometimes they're being done because the offline journalism is falling short. Mm. Um, what is it about the internet that makes it well suited to challenging authority? Well, it was always designed to be a space where people could be anonymous and where um, there was no inherent need for a transaction. So, you know, if you want something on the internet, you ask for it and, and you get it. And even at a very technological level, that's what's happening. And you get it, whatever it is you've asked for, you know, a web page usually, without having asked, um, without having had to say who you are. So the combination of not having to say who you are or have any kind of real identity as you would in sort of physical space and um, not having to give anything in return makes a huge Difference. And that, even though it started as a technical point, has sort of percolated right down into just the way people understand 
their own usage patterns on the internet. Um, so that's given rise to a whole new set of behaviours which are really interesting and of course affecting lots of the ways that the offline world, if you like, um, operates. And Wikileaks is a part of that. Those diplomats whose who's, um, sort of backdoor dealings were exposed by Wikileaks. You know that that was a kind of real world um, implication, if you like, of something that, that happened in in the sort of virtual network space. Um, so increasingly, the internet's beginning to have these. Well, it's been having them for a long time, but it's, it's getting more and more of the time. In a sense, it's 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 a real surprise that Wikileaks didn't happen sooner. Okay, so given that, do you think that aspect of the internet is more compatible with? certain cultures and less compatible with others and are there other aspects of the internet that are equally more compatible with certain cultures and less compatible with others? I think that's a really interesting question because it depends on, on what aspects of, of people's behaviour and of their, of the, you know, their desire to do certain things on the internet um, comes from their culture and what just comes from being a human being and that's not really something that anybody uh, has come up with a good answer to yet. Um, I mean, I've been to countries where people were quite restricted and were sort of trying to use the internet as a way to to break out of that restriction. I mean, we can look at uh, what's just happened in Tunisia. There's a sort of argument there as to whether that um, was fueled by the use of social media, which is sort of, you could see that as sort of amateur internet publishing, you know, 140 characters at a time in the case of Twitter. Um, I'm not convinced that there's a culture that would say, if, if they were given the chance, that would say, you know, actually we really, um, unless it's like a very small society that's very traditional and, and there really isn't a lot of need for, you know, I mean, the, the internet's a platform for globalisation, so in cultures where globalisation hasn't yet reached, or the kind of you know perks, if you like, the cosmopolitanism, things like that, that come from globalisation, haven't really appeared yet, or haven't become something that's demanded yet. Maybe you could say, well, the, the sort of freedoms and the possibilities of challenging authority and all the rest of it that come from the internet wouldn't be necessary, or would be rejected, or you know wouldn't be wanted by the people. But I think there are very few societies like that left now, and that. The rest of the world, at least the places that I've been to, um, every country obviously having its own press laws and things like that, um, there always seems to, to be a sort of real desire for that freedom, especially when it's restricted in, in other, other parts of life. Um, okay, so do you think that what seem like potential clashes between cultures over the internet are real or, or not? I mean, I suppose the short answer is yes, of course, I mean, of course they're real. Um, the, because the internet is a non-prescriptive space, it's the most unprescriptive cultural space we have, the only prescriptions come from the actual people who are participating in that space. It's sort of, you know, imagine like a field where anybody could do what they want. Well, of course, there would be conflicts between some of those people in the field and other people, and it's kind of like that, but in a digital form, you know. So, I mean, if you take uh, religious groups on the internet and you take um, 
other religious groups or you take, you know, animal rights activists accusing other people of being paedophiles or something like that. I mean, there's lots of conflicts that occur, you could say, at the cultural level, definitely. But they all arise out of that freedom in the first place. You can say what you want. I mean, you can publish what you want. You can interact with who you want. Um, so there's always go going to be where there's no possibility of, of, of controlling that, some, some conflicts, and that might be intercultural conflict, or some of it might be. Um, but there's just, there's, there's just as much chance for interpersonal conflict as well. Okay. But how do you think these conflicts, or clashes, um, could be avoided? I'm not sure that they can, because I think human beings don't, you know, don't seem to know how to avoid that kind of conflict, online or otherwise. <laughs> um, unfortunately, it's, it, it's you know unless you could sit, well, you could say, well, there's there's something called proper, you know, responsible, sensible use of the internet, and you know if everybody conformed to these rules, um, just moral rules, let's say, or you know rules of code of conduct, then this kind of thing wouldn't happen. But um, that doesn't sound like human beings. It sounds like robots, really. So I'm not sure that 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 would really happen. I mean, the Danish cartoons uh, strikes me as a, as a good example of, although they were originally published in a newspaper, the fact that they were able to spread on the internet and so many more people around the world were able to see them so quickly without having to go and buy a copy of that Danish newspaper um, is a good example of the internet and the things that are inherent to the internet kind of stoking cultural conflict. Okay, so given that, um, do you think that all attempts to regulate the internet are inevitably doomed to fail? I think at the national level, yes. Okay. All, all national level attempts to regulate the internet, short of very crude technical solutions like blocking certain websites, which of course can always be gotten around anyway, um, are doomed to fail, definitely. But I think there is a possibility of trying to reimagine the internet maybe as a, a constitutionally unified space, even almost make it its own country and have a constitution and things like that, that people um, are sort of bound to follow. A little bit like human rights um, ideals, you know, like we've got the UN Declaration of Human Rights, we've got the um, European Convention on Human Rights, and then that, that trickles down. The UK has the Human Rights Act 1998, they all have exactly the same rules in them. So now we in the UK are bound by rules that in theory every government around the world is supposed to be bound by. So we could have something like that for the internet that might work. But that, that, of course implementation of that would be hugely complicated and very difficult to enforce even at that level because it would rely on every government having to cooperate with every other government around the world. And we, we know that we don't live in that world. Um. So do you think the internet has a especially significant or interesting relationship with um, local culturally specific law or international law? I think it has a, an interesting relationship with both. I mean, I suppose in, in some sense they're like opposite ends of the spectrum, you know. I mean, with the, with the local law and local customs that you could say are the source of that local law, um, there's probably in each place a different kind of friction um, because the rule of law is never without its frictions with, with the commonly held 
moral beliefs in any given given culture. Um, I mean, in a place like London or the UK, to a broader extent, I suppose, because it's such a, a mixed and diverse place, and there's people from so many different cultures already, that the need for some binding, I mean binding us together rather than legally binding, but some, some set of rules that we already follow is not such a, a big deal, but in some places I can imagine that, um, well, that, that, for instance, the possibility for saying whatever you like and insulting whoever you like um, versus the local custom that you show respect for elders or something like that would, would be a, an enormous possibility of conflict. Um, or, for instance, I mean, gender is, a, is an obvious one, you know, young women being able to express their, their identities and, and, and kind of be themselves in one space and, and yet at, at the same time um, the culture that they're in maybe not, not being so conducive to that, sort of, if you like, in real space. So there are definitely possibilities for that conflict. And then with international law, I mean, like I was saying before, international law is one of the ways that that you could try and find a, a kind of common ground between the internet, something that's inherently international, although most of the world's population still don't have access to it. But even when they do, and of course, you know, access to the internet itself geographically is already spread around, around the world, um, there's, there's some great possibility of, 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 you know, if that already, if that law follows the culture of the internet, because I do believe the internet sort of has its own culture once you learn how to use it. And that's really interesting because it's transcending that, that local culture. Um, there could be some really interesting applications for international law. But actually at the moment you see a lot of international treaties being violated on the internet as well. Like for instance, um, intellectual property, WIPO laws. I mean, internet users do what they like and they're used to doing what they like. And that for internet users around the world is a cultural development. Being able to do what you want with your own computer in this space is completely irregulable. Um, so whether it's a local law or an international law, in some sense, doesn't really matter. If you don't like it, you don't have to follow it mm. on the internet. Um, and do you think the culture of the internet that you just spoke of is a culture that is associated with um, Western culture or different cultures? Or I suppose, you know, as, as a de facto Westerner, however cosmopolitan we try and be, mm. I guess that's what I am. Um, I have to say it's, it's hard not to think that it probably, having been invented by Westerners um, you know, in the US, it would be hard to argue to an anthropologist or to a psychologist or something that didn't have quite significant reflections of that culture in it. Both, I mean, even very basic stuff like um, until relatively recently in the life of the internet, a sort of unified standard for having accented characters and you know other alphabets, non-Roman alphabets, was actually quite difficult. Mm. Or having like um, a dot com that wasn't written in Roman script only became possible about eighteen months ago. Um, so there's a sort of you can I mean if you go really sort of down to the bottom level of the pyramid, if you like, you can see that that you know that that very technology that enables the whole internet has a Western bias in it. Yeah. So the natural assumption would be that that bias kind of feeds all the way up and that there are other things. For instance, well, there's the First Amendment in the US Constitution, the right to free speech. 
And then there's this immense freedom that we have on the internet. Not only right to free speech, but other things that don't count as speech, like right to publish um, whatever art or music that I want to make, however you know, offensive it might be to some government or other. Well, that's completely within my right on the internet. So that's sort of an extension of free speech, and it's something that's inherent to the web, and only the web, really. Is the amorphous, transcendent internet community a reflection of a real-world community? Or does it, and has it helped to create one? I think, yeah, I think it's helped to create one. That's, that's more the case than it being a reflection of one. But of course, people always bring themselves, their own personalities, into, well, hopefully every activity that they do, but certainly activities that they do uh, with one another in a complete, sort of, completely or relatively free space like that, they are going to be, um, you know, that's going to be a reflection of, of them. But yes, definitely, you know, the nice, well, nice, I don't want to make value judgments, but certainly one of the interesting things about the internet from quite early on has been that um, communities formed that were completely non-geographical. So you get, you know, some guy in Utah, some girl in, you know, uh, Wiltshire, let's say, um, talking to each other on the internet and then they get married or something or they decide they're going to or whatever you get and you, you get kind of actually quite large groups of people kind of deciding that they, they well they've, they've found a common interest they're all very interested in you know uh, locomotives or something completely it could be anything you know that's that's the interesting part about it so lots of things that have been neglected by sort of I guess mainstream cultures that capitalism uses to kind of sell us things or whatever have been able to blossom in the space where, because there was no transactional or commercial backbone, and, and transactions didn't matter, it could just be a, a, a conversation, and then people naturally start to converse about their interests and find each other, and of course search engines and things like that really make a big difference when it comes to, you know, to finding people who are interested in the same things as you. And... Do you think that the fact that the internet is not physically tied to a specific geographical area comes with a potential for cultural risk or clashes between cultures? Well, I suppose it makes for the possibility of a, of a common battleground. I mean, if you wanted to, to look at it in those terms, if, if I want to antagonise people on the other side of the world, I can more easily with the internet than without it. And, but I... I don't know that people in their internet use necessarily think about themselves as, as nationals going to the country. I think that's the thing that's liberating about it. So in their interactions with people around the world, they might um, encounter cultural differences that stem from their, their nationality or from the culture where they grew up. You see that in YouTube comments and other sort of rather, what's the word, you know, it's hard to think of a kind word for it, but certain, certain rather antagonistic conversations that you find in various places. Um, you could easily, I'm sure, if you were an anthropologist, look at those conversations and say, well, you know, um, this person, for instance, is British, so for them, you know, boasting about how well they can do something is, is, is probably not acceptable, whereas to an American that would be. Or you could say, um, I mean, I read a really interesting book about the difference between West and East and the sort of tracing that difference right back to sort of ancient philosophy and 
you know, West is more of a culture of the individual and East is a culture of groups and, you know, knowing your place and that kind of thing. I'm not saying whether that is, is my view or not, but I mean, certainly, that kind of difference, assuming it to be real, is certainly something that you would see in the interactions that, that occur in, in the internet. So you mentioned the fact that it kind of, it kind of exists as a common battleground, a kind of free space. Potentially, yeah. Potentially. Um, what do you think are the further implications of such free space or common battleground as well? Well, I mean, the nice thing is that a lot of the implications themselves uh, aren't really known. We just know that unless something happens to the technology that enables that space, which of course is always being debated, um, the possibilities are nearly limitless. I mean, real world, you know, physical things like real art or music or, you know, um, certain other things might, might be harder to, to make or harder to do, depending. Um, but uh, as for implications of, of that space, of that sort of... It, the main and the most important implication is simply that I can talk to anyone and I can show anyone anything and they can show that to me, provided that it can be digitised. I mean, I think one of the really interesting things that, that we should talk about or that, that people should talk about in general that doesn't come up enough is what happens to culture when you digitise it. Because there are economic, you know, things that can happen once you set something free from its physical form. There are, of course, um, political forms of self-representation that change quite a lot. I mean, look at the use of uh, the internet by this phantasmic... Um, Al-Qaeda uh, idea, you know, that, that, that these sort of phantasmic leaders that we're chasing all the time, that never seem to be apprehended, can put a video kind of uh, talking to the world, or talking to their followers or whoever, uh, whenever they like, and, and the sort of radicalising effects that those videos are said to have. Um, even quite recently, I think, in, in the UK, there was a case that was said to be, um, there was a young woman who I think had attacked her local MP, and this was said to be as a result of having been radicalised by a video on the internet. So there you have a kind of very real um, and quite serious political or arguably political event happening um, entirely because this political will, this strong political will, had been digitised in a particular form and put there for people to find, and they did find it, and you know, that was that was one of the sort of consequences, or you could argue that was one of the consequences. And then there's the whole economic question, well there's, there's been whole industries that have been decimated by the fact that the, the kind of culture they produce and sell, and, and whether or not you morally believe in the, the legitimacy of selling culture or not is a different story which we don't have to get into, but um, I mean music industry, MP3s in the kind of late 90s and, and early 2000s, that was a, that's still a huge deal, actually, and there are still lawsuits going on all the time about that kind of thing. Um, photography has been completely changed and what it means to own a photo. If you look at the things that they tried to put in the Digital Economy Bill uh, last year. Um, journalism. I mean, that isn't so much a, a victim of theft in the same way, people deciding that something that was formerly paid for should now be free, but almost the publishers themselves decided that they were going to start putting things on the internet free and now that's where a lot of people get their journalism especially the younger generation when they are interested in the world which is all too rare 
you just go online and find it with, with in Wikipedia or with a Google search or, or something like that. They don't go and buy a newspaper because, I mean, if you're under the age of about, you know, 30, why would you, really? I mean, if it's Sunday <laughs> papers or something, but why would you print something out and then read it when you can just go straight online on your phone even or something like that? Mm. It doesn't make any, any real sense or I can understand it not making sense to a, a large number of people. Um, what's interesting is you slipped from one use of the term free to a different use of the term free. Um, and I kind of want you to elaborate what sense in, you th what sense in which you think the internet is a free space. Because there's an ambiguity there. Well, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that in English they are the same word, even though in other languages they are two different words. Um, because I think we are free in both, and in a sense because of the way capitalism works, and maybe this is one of the kind of inherent flaws in capitalism, once you set something free in the sense of freedom, you make it difficult to control, um, and you make its availability, um, because it is free, as in it's like free like a bird, um, it, can't be, it can't be sold, you can only sell something that, 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 that's a controlled resource, um, so if that resource isn't controlled anymore, then market forces of the market will drive the price down to zero. I mean, the first group of people to really um, grapple with that problem were the software industry, led by a guy called Richard Stallman, um, who worked at MIT. He came up with something called the um, GNU Public License. I mean, he's the father of open source, really. He, he said that you know, the software he created, he wanted that to be free in the freedom sense of the word. Um, he wasn't opposed to people selling their work, but he invented a system that made it rather difficult um, because if, if the rules are such that I'm allowed to take your work, I'm allowed to modify it, and then I'm allowed to distribute it, and they're all conditions of the same contract, so I can't take your work, modify it, and modify it without distributing it, and I can't uh, distributed without modifying it, and I can't, you know, um, all of those things have to be, because of the way royalties work and copyright and all those things, they have to be done all at the same time. And that makes the price go down to zero, even though it's actually based on the other kind of freedom. So, um, And do you think this conception of freedom, or those conception of freedom, are culturally specific? I think the, the conception of freedom must it must surely be culturally specific. I don't know about enough different cultures to know um, whether or how much the idea of freedom varies. I suspect it varies partly because of the political situation in each place. I don't, I don't want to confuse cultures with countries because I know that they are different, but um, I, yeah, I, I do think that that, that that varies a lot. Okay, well, I think that's a good place to end. Okay. Thank you very much, Marcus. Um, no problem. Thanks for inviting us here for this Counterpoint interview. Oh, yeah, thanks for coming. <laughs>